Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their country their own country by another way today's a special day it's a festive day it's a time to celebrate as we commission Jonathan King to be our next lead pastor I know there are at least uh, six members of the fellowship that have labored faithfully with me for the last year on the search team that are rejoicing to see this day. (laughs) But for the next few minutes, I wanted to take on a little more solemn feel. This is a significant time. You are stepping, Jonathan, into a significant role. And I want to give you, very briefly... Five challenges for you, to, for you to just think on as you step into this role. So I'm kind of talking to you, but I'm going to be a little bit... Uh, <laughs> I will give you a copy of this when I'm done. Jonathan, I want to charge you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To daily walk with Him, to listen to His voice as you read and meditate on his word, because only from that position will you be able to fulfill the responsibilities of being a successful pastor. Secondly, I want to charge you to love your wife. And bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. For only when your home is in order will you be able to take care of the church of God? 
thirdly, I want to charge you to be devoted to prayer. When many things needed done in the early church, two rose to the top as priorities for the apostles. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that leads me directly to the fourth one. I charge you to preach the word. To preach the word was a solemn charge Paul gave to his son in the faith, Timothy. Don't preach your opinions or what you think the people will like to hear. Preach the word. And finally, I charge you to shepherd the flock of God that is under your care. This task is too big for any one man. Therefore, I charge the elders, along with every father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, uncle, aunt, Sunday school teacher, youth worker, or friend, shepherd the flock of God that is under your care. Only as we share this task will the people be loved and cared for as they ought to be. So today, Jonathan, we are commissioning you to be the new lead shepherd of Bridgeport Community Chapel. But ultimately, I want you to recognize that this does not come from the elders. This does not come from this group of people. Ultimately, this commission comes from the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So this is a symbol that he is now entrusting you to be the lead shepherd in this place on behalf of him. But on behalf of Jesus, we as the elders of Bridgeport Community Chapel charge you to fulfill the ministry as the lead shepherd of this place. And as we place our hands on you and on this staff together with you, we pledge our faithfulness to walk alongside you to shepherd this flock under our care here at Bridgeport. And I would like to ask you, if you would, as a congregation, to stand at this time indicating your support and desire to be involved in this ministry at Bridgeport Chapel as we pray for Jonathan as elders. Please pray with us. And Father, we just thank you that for Jonathan and his wife, Laura, and their, and their family, Lord. We just thank you for Jonathan's high calling, Lord, to, to lead this congregation, Father God. And we stand behind him, Lord. And, and as the, I just pray for a uh, shield of protection upon his family, Lord God, as they step into this, Lord role and as pastor and his wife lord god i just pray for a special anointing upon his life and, and and just a special shield of protection upon him lord even more so than ever lord god none of the fiery darts enter into their home lord and father as the the man of god may change 
the, me the messenger may change, Lord, that preaches the word, Lord, but the message does not change, Lord God. And I pray that you hold on to the solid rock, and God's word does never change, and that word will be spoken from this pulpit, Lord, as it was from the beginning, the pastor before and before and before, and for generations to come, God's word is forevermore, and it never changes. And Father, we're just thankful for this day, that God, that we can be a part of it and be a part of helping. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Father, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. And we recognize you as our shepherd who has cared for us for all these generations that you have through the ages. You are a wonderful shepherd to us. And Father, as Jonathan becomes another shepherd under you, that he will see the necessity of keeping his eyes on you and seeing your lead and seeing your example as he leads us to green pastures, still waters, things that are good for us as he keeps his eye out for the enemy as wounds are bound up and those lost sheep are gathered back into the fold. May you strengthen this under shepherd, Father, to your honor and to your glory. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that Christ has led the church. But dear Lord, we also know that you have commissioned those to help us here on earth as well. Dear Lord, we ask that um, as Jonathan takes this role, dear Lord, that uh, he would lead by following your example. We realize that the important decisions that are made, the word, your word that goes out, Today, as I hear the sounds of children in this congregation, children yet to be raised in your way, Lord, we realize that for generations to come that our actions are important, that this has come down to us through 2,000 years, dear Lord, and that we fulfill our responsibility, that we become another important link in the chain, dear Lord. And as Jonathan fulfills that role, we ask that you would give him your wisdom and your guidance. As we have a pastor that is here to encourage us, to be with us, to comfort us, and yes, sometimes maybe to exhort us or discipline. Lord, we ask that you would lay it on our hearts, that whatever we could do to support him, to Lord, to help carry your work forward, that we would be there. We ask that you will be with his family, for his wife, for his children, that you would protect them, dear Lord. We thank you so much for the work that they do also. Dear Lord, we ask that you will bless him in Jesus' name. Father God, I, 
I say amen to these prayers, and Lord, I just come to this moment with great joy, with a solemn heart, because it's a serious thing, Father. And I just pray that my brother Jonathan will know that we sincerely pledge ourselves to walk faithfully with him. Teach us, God, your ways. God, we, we need we need your guidance as the chief almighty shepherd. And Father, I pray that each time before Jonathan would step onto this platform to speak your word, God, it would come from a sincere heart who has drawn deeply, who has drawn aside to be with you, to seek you, to seek your wisdom. Lord, work in his heart that his words would be sincere, truthful, and honoring to you. And Lord, I ask your blessing on those, those quiet places that he will need to go with you. May he not neglect time with you. God, we won't see it, but you will. And you want to meet with him. May that be the habit of his life. And God, I pray that you would bless his leadership in his home. I pray, God, that you would bless his marriage. Father, that you'd bless him with children who love you with their whole heart as well. Give him wisdom in that task, Father, of training his children. And Father, I thank you for the future that you see for this place. God, um, it's, a new, it's a new era, so to speak, and I just pray, Father, we would continue in faithfulness to you in the days ahead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, good morning. It is a privilege, it's an honor to share the word, and I look forward to it, and discovering more of God together with you, all of you, over the time ahead, whatever that is God has for us. We're under a good shepherd, aren't we? I was thinking about the crook here, which I appreciate. It's a, maybe I should hang it on the wall somewhere, or maybe we should commission one of the young guys to walk around and bang people on the head if they're falling asleep. <laughs> you know, they used to do that, but... I think maybe we've moved beyond those days. Maybe we shouldn't have moved. I don't know. <clears throat> um, Scott read the scripture this morning. You, you've got the idea. We're, we're looking a little Christmassy here. We kind of blazed past Thanksgiving, which is a little bit of a shame, but it's the way it is, I guess. And I hope you had a good time of giving thanks with your family or friends. I want to take the next several weeks and spend some time in that passage that Scott read. And maybe I'm limiting myself, or maybe I'm just, I, you know, there's something to taking one verse per sermon, right? This could take our whole lifetimes to get through the Bible. But um, I, hopefully we won't do that too terribly bad. But I'd like to discover a little bit about the wise men this, this Christmas with you. Today I'd like to talk about the wise men a little bit, who they are, why they sought the king. And then as we go forward, 
We'll talk about King Herod in Jerusalem with him, what their response was and why. I'd like to explore Micah's prophecy a little bit. You see that there in the passage. And perhaps a few other prophecies that, sh- that bring us to the first coming of Christ um, and point to the Messiah in general. So, and then hopefully at the end, um, the last time, we'll talk about the wise men's encounter when they do find the Christ child. Um, this could change, but that's my plan at this point to discover some more of these things together. So we come to Matthew I'm not going to talk much about his, his gospel or his authorship at this point. But why is Matthew telling us this story is a question we need to ask. We've come to think of it as one of a few, not very many, but important parts of our nativity scene or our Christmas scene, our story that we, we rehearse annually. But why this story? Were there others that had to do with the Christ child? Um, Matthew, as an author, and the Holy Spirit, we know the Holy Spirit is author of our scripture, of course, has a motive in mind. They are taking their audience, their reader, their hearer somewhere. And I want to try to discover that as we go through this story together. Um, A little bit of that will come out today, I hope. They have an emphasis. The author, Matthew, has an emphasis he'd like us to see. He could have probably included other stories. He could have left this one out. We don't know for sure, but there's more than just a history here. There's a story for a purpose, and there's some treasure to be found, and and God willing, we'll find some of that treasure. So let's look at the text together. If you've got your Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 2 again, and um, we're going to work through the first couple of verses together. It says, after Jesus was born, so we know it's after, that's about all we know, Sometime after, could have been a year, could have been a, a while after. And then it says, in Bethlehem of Judea, so we've, we've got the setting, um, the whole scene with the manger and the shepherds, all of those things that we love and, and do. Matthew doesn't mention much of that in his gospel. Um, we get a lot of the detail there from Luke, of course. Bethlehem. Where was Bethlehem? Well, the Bethlehem he's talking about is Judea. This town was about six miles south of Jerusalem or so. Um, There's significant history in the town of Bethlehem. It's very small, sort of a poor town, by the way. But it began perhaps um, when when Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob buried his wife uh, Rachel in this in this town, this place. The ancestry of Israel. Is, is rich in Bethlehem. We know it, of course, as the hometown of King David. And then from there, the prophecies began, which we'll talk about later, um, but as the birthplace of the king, the Messiah, right? The scripture goes on and says, in the days of King Herod, we're going to talk about Herod a little bit more later, uh, but of course, Israel's under Rome right now. Herod was the appointed ruler at the time. It says, wise men from the east, wise men from the east, and then that's about it. We don't have much more on who these wise men are. I mean, had Matthew included one more phrase or two more phrases, it would have changed so much for us, but that's what he gives us. Lots of detail are left out. 
who they are, how many there were, and where they came from exactly. But as I mentioned, the author has things for his audience, that's us today, to learn. He has an emphasis. He wants those who read his book to hear. In other words, a lot of detail is left out. Now we can ask when we come to the wise men, perhaps the first thing to ask is, is this a fictional story or is this factual We don't have time to go into that too much today, but we're going to come with the assumption that because this is the Word of God, because we take this to be truth entirely, we say this is true. This story, this tale of the wise men is true. Now, there's a lot to explore there as far as um, the Word of God and its truth, but for today, that's where we are. It's interesting to note, I, I discovered that, I didn't see them myself, but there's 85, at least 85 depictions of the wise men coming to see the Christ on the walls of the, catac- the, um, the catacombs where the Christians hid about a century later. So th- this was something they knew, something real. So going off of what we have, what we know, who were these guys? And again, we've seen, we've heard so much, perhaps, if you've been in the church or around the church, you've heard various things about who the Magi were, who the wise men were. The word is Magoi, or something along those lines. We get Magi, we read Magi um, in the English. Our word magician would come from that word, but properly understood, we're not talking about magicians in the sense that we would think about magicians. It probably has more to do with a class of priests among ancient Persians or Babylonians. It is probably more likely being referred to, um, or it is referring to learned, educated court advisors, including, in that case, study of the heavenlies, astrology. Perhaps it's even harkening back to the time of Daniel. You remember Daniel from... from, um, the book of Daniel, the Old Testament, where he was taken to Babylon. He was a court advisor. He was a wise man for Nebuchadnezzar. Learned counselors. Maybe they should be thought of as royal court advisors. Wise man is not bad, but again, it still does not exactly conjure up the correct picture if you just think about it in our context. It's not just someone with a good sense of wisdom, in other words. Um, but perhaps a sage. It's an education. It's learned. It's religious. As Westerners, we really don't have a good handle to hang what the wise men were on. Maybe you've heard them called kings. It's not likely that they were kings in the sense of national rulers. You may, be, you may think of them in, as kings in the sense that they did have some authority, some kind of honor, They seem to have ready access to the court of Herod, by the way. And they had some wealth. They had to have some money. We we assume that based upon their gifts, based upon the trip they were able to afford. Now, nationality, they're from the east. It's not likely these guys were Jews. But clearly they were sympathetic. They were interested in the Jews. And... For what reason, we're not totally sure. I think it really, probably in all truth, they were, they were heathens in the sense that they were not Jews. They were probably not devout, God-honoring, monotheistic type people. 
Maybe they were more so after the encounter with the Christ child. We can hope for that. One other thing we know about the wise men is that there was more than one of them. There was at least two. It's plural. Perhaps there were three. Some Eastern traditions put the number at 12. We really don't know. We really don't know. And again, I bring you back. Maybe that's not the author's point. Maybe he doesn't want us to know exactly how many there, there were, how may, or who they were, who they are. He wants us to look further. Now, the wise men were from the east. I don't know if you can see there, but the east, there's, you can see Babylonia, perhaps pretty clearly written there. That, that, that general area is what we expect as far as the east, Media, Persia, Babylon, it's modern-day Iran. Um, you can perhaps notice my little scratch there. I would assume that would be something like the um, route that they took. Now, um, it, you can see it goes northward. There's a big dry desert there, and so the assumption is that they wouldn't have risked crossing the desert. It's a, it would have been a, a bit of a risk being so hot, dry, and a long, a long trek. Now, I don't know what that does to our tradition about camels. Did they use camels? Eh, who knows? But in any case, camels were a good vehicle, so it's, it's okay. This journey would have taken them several weeks, at least. It was a long journey. Now, as you probably are aware, they, they didn't travel just, just three lone guys with crowns on their heads and, and royal robes. They were traveling in an entourage. Very likely they had servants, even military escort, um, to be safe in this journey. But again, perhaps the author doesn't want us to camp on that subject. What did they look like? How many people were with them? These sorts of things. We see then in the first verse that they arrived in Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem? Well, you see there perhaps, if you can read that map, Jerusalem central to Israel, something along those lines. Why Jerusalem? Well, it was the capital city. It's a logical place for the king of the Jews to be born. But look at verse 2 now. It says, They said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So we need to explore now why and what they came for. They came seeking a king. Who? The one born king of the Jews. Do you, have you heard that? Does that conjure up anything? King of the Jews? At, toward the very end of Matthew's book in verse 37 of chapter 27. I'll just read it to you. It says, Above his head they put this charge up against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was hung above him on the cross as he died. Interesting to point that out. These men came seeking king of the King of the Jews. Now notice in that phrase, they presupposed him to be born as royal. They had to have some study and familiarity with the Jews to know that there was to be a king born as royal. Not instituted, but born as royal. They didn't have enough familiarity, obviously, to know that he was to be born in Bethlehem. They didn't know that. They went to Herod, right? By the way, Herod didn't know that either. 
Uh, he, he was supposed to be king of the Jews. This may have been an insult to him. He, he wasn't a Jew by, by birth. I ask a question of you, and I'll leave it as a question, but was there an assumption that his reign would extend to all the earth through the Jews somehow? Or were they just these wise men? Maybe they were just infatuated with Jews and all things Jewish. Or is there a sense in which the whole world was looking for a Messiah and these men had a finger on the pulse of how that was to be? Where is he, they asked, the one born king of the Jews? And then they go on and they say, we saw his star rise. Now, I don't. I don't claim in any way to be very uh, familiar with how and what is going on with this star with them. I don't even know what goes on with the stars with us. But um, some have, there, there's, there's um, various ideas, speculations about what this star was. And maybe it was a supernova, an exploding star that hung in the sky for a couple of weeks type of an idea. Some have said, well, it was the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter Saturn is supposed to um, be the representative planet for the Jews, and Jupiter's the king planet, and, um, well, there's some problems with that. It was supposed to, there was supposed to be an alignment about the time of Christ's birth, these sort of things, but there's some issues there. There's other theories, a comet, or was it fully supernatural? They claimed they saw the star rising, and then later in, the, in, the, in the, the paragraph down here in verse 9, the star led them to the place of his dwelling. I, I would just throw in here real quickly, if you remember Balaam the prophet, he prophesied years prior to the nation of Israel. He was supposed to be cursing them, but in the providence of God, he blessed them. And he said this in Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. Jesus, of course, would be this star. I don't presume to think Balaam was talking about a star in the heavenlies. Jesus was this star. I don't think there's some kind of magical connection, but the literal star that the wise men saw led them to the place where the star, the king, was born. Interesting. I personally would lean, lean toward thinking the star that led them was a supernatural phenomenon, and it was just for them. Maybe some other people saw it, but it was for them. Now, finally, we come in the, in the latter part of verse 2 to the motive of the wise men. What do they say there? We have come to worship him. They're not real shy about their motive. They tell King Herod right away, we have come to worship him. Now, if you stop and think about that for a minute, why did the wise men from the east assume that the child born king of the Jews was worthy of worship? Some ancient kings were considered deity. They wanted to be worshipped or they forced people to worship them, those sorts of things, but not all kings were. I would say that they believed Jesus to be more than just another king of little Judah or Israel. He was something special. 
Again, they were expecting and believing in a greater king, perhaps the king of kings. Now, do you see in their statement here in verse 2, and this is what I want to get to for us today, their eagerness to come, to find, to believe. Think about that star. They saw the star and they went on a journey. They believed. Their eagerness to discover and finally to worship. To come and worship. I think this might be contrasted with the Jewish leadership and others in, in Judah, in Jerusalem. Their apparent apathy. They had the prophets to inform them. They weren't looking. They weren't seeking or desirous to worship this king. There are some exceptions to that. If you remember the prophetess Anna in the temple, she was seeking. She was waiting for the Messiah. But a comparison is drawn. A comparison is drawn. Matthew, by the way, does not really comment on the morals or the, the godliness of these wise men or their vocation as magi. It's possible that they, they had some questionable ways or methods. We don't know for sure. It's likely they weren't ideal in a moral or godly sense. But they were seeking, and this is Matthew's point, to worship a worthy king. Their eagerness stands out to go, to sacrifice, to travel, believe, and worship. I think this is one of the things that Matthew and the Holy Spirit as the author wants us to hear. They want us to get this. Don't pass this one over. He wants the reader or the hearer to camp on this, emphasize this point. They were eager, desiring to worship the king. And we'll see this continued, by the way, in the verses ahead. Now, what about this emphasis? Does this challenge us in any way? I think first, there's two things. First, the wise men's eagerness was backed by faith. A belief that this child was someone worthy of their worship. They risked, they sacrificed to discover him. Though we don't know exactly all they knew, we can be sure that they knew a lot less, that they had a lot less than we do today about this Christ. And yet they still had assurance. They still stepped out, didn't they? We have so much more information, namely the completed word of God that you hold in your hands of prophecy. We have history, testimony. They never had those things. So I ask, do you and I have the faith, the assurance, the eagerness that the wise men had to seek and discover him? Do I badly want to know him so I can worship him properly? This process, as we get to know him deeper, will change, but we need to believe and take action. He is worthy. So do you believe that he is the truth, that he is the Messiah? Does this elicit eagerness in you? Faith that takes action. I think the second thing then, hopefully you can read that. What is this, this action, this faith toward? It's eagerness for a person. 
not just the truth. Get this, not just the truth, not just justice or rightness or other good things. The wise men seem to have an eagerness for the Messiah, the King himself. So I think the emphasis here that we need to latch on to is not just to seek truth or peace or justice, etc. Rather, they sought him. We can get caught up in that, can't we? Seeking truth, seeking logic, or perhaps peace or liberty or any number of other good things. Don't get me wrong. But the emphasis here points to a person, an eagerness for Christ, for Jesus himself. And why? To lay our lives before him in submission to worship him. An eagerness to worship him. So we see then that it's not an eagerness just for an end result. For other things, peace, for rapture even, for justice, or even, I might add, It's not just a desire for heaven, a desire for being with him, but it's an eagerness and a desire for him as our Savior, our friend, our Lord, a desire then to worship him with our life in everything we are and everything we do. It's to show that he is of utmost value and then to lay our lives before him in submission. An eagerness for a person. For Jesus. So, what about Christmas of 2021? We know what it's really about, don't we? Thank the Lord we do. We know the reason for the season and all those things. Part of the great value of the Christmas season for us as Christians is it gives us an opportunity to reflect and meditate on the Messiah, our Messiah. But I challenge you to take this from the wise men. Let the wise men challenge you this year as we kick off this season to be eager for him. An eagerness backed by faith, faith that takes action. An eagerness for a person, not just for good things of various sorts, but for him to worship him as God, as king, as Messiah. Now there's a danger here. Many of us have a history in Christianity, in church life, in Christian homes, and in Christmas. Though wonderful and a great blessing, these things that I just mentioned, it can be deceiving. In other words, having an in with the knowledge of what these things are about um, in Christianity, that is not the vital component. The vital component is not seating yourself well in your church or in your family or in the Christmas traditions. All good things, but that is not the vital component to our godliness, to our happiness. The wise men had faith. They had eagerness. They desired to worship with their lives, and this was their heart. This was their heart. Perhaps you've gone to church all your life. Just because you are as kids growing up in a Christian home, Just because your grandmother prays for you, God bless her, keep doing it. Just because you own one or two or five Bibles, these things are not the vital component of your Christian life. Where is your heart? Are you eager? And for what? I'm sure that we're all eager for something if we check ourselves. 
but we want to be, and here's the two things, we want to be eager, backed by a faith. The wise men took action. Eagerness, backed by faith. And secondly, eagerness to know Jesus and to worship him properly in your life. Not just truth, not just justice or safety or even eternal life, but eagerness for him that we might worship him with our lives. The wise men were eager to worship him. And you've all seen the bumper sticker. Wise men, and I would add women, still seek him. That's us. So let's travel. I invite you, travel with the wise men this Christmas season and find the king that we might worship him. Let's ask God's blessing on that journey. Father, thank you that we can have the clarity of the eagerness of the wise men. Thank you for giving us that gift and, and, and the testimony that they provide through the years. We need that eagerness, God. It's easy to get apathetic, to get in the normal Christian tradition or Christmas tradition or any other thing to just kind of forget what it is we do and who we do it for and who you are. It's easy to forget that we are here to worship you and enjoy you. Thank you, God, that you've put us in this place to do that. Let us then, with eagerness and by faith, find you for who you truly are to worship you. We love you, God. Thank you so much for your love for us now. In Jesus' name, amen.